Hey, welcome back to Conversing Labs. I'm your host, Paul Roberts, and uh, Conversing Labs, if you're new to this show, is Reversing Labs podcast where we talk about the latest happenings in threat analysis, software assurance, and we talk to the best and brightest minds in cybersecurity, and uh, we got one of them on the line here today, welcoming back Joseph Edwards, who is a malware researcher here at Reversing Labs. Joseph, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Glad to be back. It's great to have you back. How you been? Been pretty good. Um, you know, still doing the research, uh, still working on the malware, uh, trying to dive in deep and get uh, technical. Yeah. And um, you're with us here today because uh, you've got some new research that you put together on a threat that um, has been getting a fair amount of kind of attention um, in recent weeks, but you did sort of a deep dive on it. And this is a piece of malware that we're calling Zetanile. Is that right? Yep. That's the, uh, Microsoft naming, um, for, for the specific component. Um, so yeah, uh, that's something that they've named and, you know, they, uh, published some of the first research on it, but we've gone ahead and done a, a deep dive into the technical aspects. This was back in September. So um, wh what do you know? Uh, uh, what can you tell us about this specific attack? And also, what do we know about how long uh, it was it was uncovered in September, how long it was going on before it was detected? It uh, from the looks of things, this is, you know, uh, the report is on a group that they track as Zinc. Uh, it's a North Korean group. Um, and we know that they have a history of conducting these campaigns on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, so the timeline of this campaign is not exactly super clear, but um, since June is is when Microsoft was saying that they've uh, been conducting the attacks. Um, and so, you know, throughout these campaigns, they've been using this tool called Zetanile, which is kind of um, a loader that they've embedded in um, open source software. Um, they've, they've trojanized... Um, a couple of different software products uh, to get past, you know, unsuspecting users, and um, they use a lot of social engineering as well. But that, that's kind of the background. Yeah, and we'll talk about that. Um, Zinc, uh, aka Lazarus, um, is this is a North Korean advanced persistent threat group, uh, presumed to be affiliated with the government of North Korea, given that I don't think it do anything in North Korea without the uh, say-so of the government. Um, what do we know about Lazarus slash Zinc and kind of their like MO and who they target, that type of stuff? Sure. Um, they definitely have a history of targeting, you know, major defense contractors and manufacturing and aerospace and um, various companies like that. Some of the bigger names include Boeing and Lockheed Martin and, um, you know, various targets uh, that could be valuable to them. So they do have a history of uh, doing these dream job campaigns where they will post some kind of job description, get people to apply via the official link, uh, and then follow up with the victims as if they are recruiters or um, HR at these companies. So yeah. um, this was a similar campaign. Pretty clever, actually, to sort of, you know, engage, send them to a legitimate job posting and then follow up. And, oh, thanks for the application. You know, we're really interested. Here's a malicious link. Could you click on it? And that's apparently what happened in um, the case with this Z, Z denial. Um, 
they sent them these uh, ISO images basically to download and install. Um, I guess, A, should that be a red flag to anybody engaged in a discussion about a potential job offering? And B, these ISO images, um, what did they have in them? And, and what happened out to the people who downloaded and, um, and ran these things? That's uh, that's a good point. The ISO images um, have, been, have become a popular delivery method for malware um, because they are containers, basically, um, not too different from having like a zip file. Um, they don't actually do a whole lot on their own. They typically just store uh, further files, but they also happen to remove Mark of the Web in certain circumstances. So Mark of the Web is a piece of metadata that um, tells Microsoft Windows to uh, that this file is downloaded from the internet, um, so it it causes a pop up for the for the user uh, to keep them from executing files. Um, but unfortunately, uh, with ISO images and .img images and other containers, um, Mark of the Web can be removed. Uh, so the circumstances in which it's removed are tricky, but they are pretty much always removed with ISO files. So this means that when this file is delivered, all of the contents uh, don't have Mark of the Web. So um, an unsuspecting user can execute them without seeing a pop-up that says this file was downloaded from the internet. Right. Um, so in this case, they were storing uh, an executable, uh, which was kind of like a fake assessment that was sent by Zinc and a text file, which was some data that they needed to put into the program to get the malware to launch. So that's what was in these files. Basically like a username and password, basically that would, mm -hmm. that would tell the malware to launch. Um, right. and, and we'll talk about this. So the, the, the malware was configured to not run a hundred percent of the time, only in, in specific circumstances. Um, in the case of the, um, malicious programs, um, they basically trojanized a bunch of common open source tools, um, PuTTY, Kitty, TightVNC. Um, what, what are these tools and how exactly did the North Koreans, did the Lazarus group um, compromise them? What did they do to them? You know, PuTTY and Kitty are both uh, basically tools for um, gaining remote terminal access. It's a pretty common tool among uh, system administrators and network administrators for just logging into another computer. Um, and it is, you know, feasible that plenty of normal users use PuTTY on a daily basis. Um, it's an open source tool, which means, you know, you can go online and, and find the source code on GitHub. Um, so it's something that probably has a lot of trust in the, the IT community. Um, but in this case, they have compiled a, uh, a backdoor basically into this program and other programs. Um, so these programs are all designed to remotely log into another computer. Um, and so the threat group is, is delivering, you know, uh, this tool and saying, uh, as part of the next round of your interview for this dream job, uh, you'll be logging into some remote machine to, do, to complete an assessment. Right. Um, and so the, the user thinks that they're logging into some kind of test machine to complete an assessment. So they're putting in an IP address and username and password into these executables. You know, it might be Tutty, it might be Putty, it might be Kitty. Um, but 
uh, little did they know that actually launches, you know, further payloads. And and what were the ultimate payloads here? What was the uh, final deliverable in these attacks? And what were the, I guess, larger objectives of the attacks, as far as we can tell? You know, not to get too technical too fast, but um, basically the the first file in, in, into which they put the username and passwords and, and credentials, that is a loader and that stores um, shellcode and an embedded DLL payload. Um, and so that loader executes the shellcode, which executes the, the payload. The final payload was um, actually itself also uh, a piece of open source software that had been trojanized by the threat actor. Um, it, it looks like uh, a, a plugin for a program called Notepad++. It's basically a tool that you know, makes things easier in Notepad++. It's a kind of uh, a word processing tool, but um, you know, none of that functionality is actually used. It just uses the open source software as a container. And this is something that we see kind of commonly with this threat group um, is that they are just putting some routine within uh, a larger piece of software. So it, it does command and control. Um, it's, it's sort of like a simple beacon slash stager. Um, the functionality is pretty limited, but it does allow the execution of further payloads uh, as mm. shell code typically. And and for all these kind of open source tools that have been trojanized, I mean, is it is it a trivial matter to determine that they've been tampered with or compromised? Like, I guess these are developers applying for development positions. And so at some level, they're comfortable with these open source packages or at least familiar with them. But how would you even know that there had been malicious functionality added to this thing? Typically, you're, you're, you would like to verify um, that this program came from the legitimate developer. Um, when something's open source, you know, you can compile it yourself and that will result in a different hash value perhaps um, just due to whatever compiler you use. Um, so if you compile a source code and you get you get uh, a binary, um, it may not exactly match the hash that the developer has. So it's typically best practice to only um, use Work. PuTTY or type VNC from the developer. So right. if you were one of these victims, the best thing to do if you thought this was a legitimate assessment would be to download PuTTY from the official site and right. then, you know, log into this box and, it, you know, if it were a legitimate assessment. Um, so if you're an end user, you might just Google the hash of the program that's been given to you and, and notice that it is not, um, you know, the official hash. Right. Um, from verifying that it is malware, it's not uh, so easy. Um, not from a dynamic perspective, and unless you have a certain amount of expertise, it's not it's not very obvious from a static perspective either. Okay, but from the just from the recipient standpoint, even just checking the hash uh, against, or even just downloading the actual tool rather than just downloading whatever was sent to you in the ISO, or ch I guess conceivably checking the hash value of what you were sent versus the actual developer's version, official version would be mm -hmm. enough to tip you off that something was amiss here, even if you couldn't tell exactly what. Yeah. And it's, um, 
you know, it does take a bit of a technical step there. Not a lot of yeah. people are used to checking the hash values of, of programs on their computers. So, so one of the things you um, noted was that a lot of the samples with APT groups like Lazarus, um, we're, you know, pretty conditioned to them building persistence features into their malware. So once they get a foothold in an environment, they really don't want to give it up. In this case, you noticed a lot of the samples that you were looking at actually didn't have, some did, but many did not. Um, what what would explain that? And I think this kind of ties into the fact that, you know, we've already mentioned um, these, this um, Trojanized, these Trojanized binaries came in a bunch of different flavors. And if you read the Microsoft report, there's just tons of different payloads. Um, and from my research, I saw that, you know, some of them stored the uh, DLL for the final payload in reverse. Sometimes it was encrypted. Sometimes it was just there and just the plain DLL, the bytes of it. Um, so it's clear that there's been a, a, a development process. They've been sort of they started off with a, a bit of a bare bones loader, and then they went through different methods of, you know, flipping the bytes and, um, you know, perhaps working on evasion from antivirus and all of that kind of thing. But it's it's clear that the tool, their tool has been been kind of evolving, and that they have different ways of of plugging in um, this loader framework into open source software. So it's clear that. You know, this tool has been evolving over time and some of the, the earlier variants didn't seem to have persistence. Um, but at the same time, you know, if they have sort of a, a very hands-on the keyboard and, and reactive approach to things, you know, as soon as the victim executes this, um, this item, you know, the threat actor is already on the line, they're already waiting right. and so that they can, they can deploy further payloads they might not need persistence within the original payload because they're highly interactive. Um, that's just one possibility, but I right. think it's, it's, it's clear that they um, had a bit of a tool life cycle here. And I mean, you mentioned the, the uh, evasion features. Um, what, what were some of the things that the, you know, again, Lazarus group, this um, uh, APT group were doing to avoid detection by would-be victims? Um, some of the anti-detection features they had uh, built into this attack? I would say that they didn't appear to care very much about um, being detected by antivirus. Um, I would say the detection rates for these payloads were not uh, very low. <laughs> you know, pretty across the board, this, this looks um, bad from a static perspective, but from a dynamic perspective, they did um, kind of manage to avoid alerting the user by of course, this is a, a Trojanized version of a regular open source software program. So, if you run the if you run the uh, payload, it looks like PuTTY or it looks like TypeVNC, um, and it doesn't execute any of the malicious functionality unless you put these details in, like the specific details that they've given you, um, and these are hard quote uh, hard coded into the malware. So, if you were executing this in a sandbox, you wouldn't get the um, you wouldn't get the malicious behavior unless you were working in a high interaction sandbox and, you know, you knew what to put in. Um, so looking at this file by itself and without having the um, credentials, um, it's, it's, it evades detection from a, a dynamic perspective. Um, but of course, static analysis is a whole different story. Yeah. So, I mean, what can organizations, what lessons can they take from that in terms of 
you know, reliable ways to get some of this malware to sort of out itself, you know, within your environment. Sure. I mean, um, there are various ways, uh, from a spat, from a static perspective, um, perhaps if you're an antivirus or security company to where you can build in detections for this kind of thing. Um, it was pretty trivial to create YAR signatures for these types of payloads. Um, from a dynamic perspective, um, you know, having some kind of behavioral monitoring um, would be, you know, really good for uh, any type of unsigned code, you know, any, um, and of course this code was not signed, um, you know, just open source compiled uh, binaries, um, you know, other things that can kind of help with attacks like these are, are turning off automatic mounting of ISO files. Um, so a lot of people have been kind of talking about um, how, you know, most users don't need ISO images. Um, they're kind of mostly used by threat actors and, you know, perhaps IT professionals who have some reason for, you know, passing around maybe system images in, in ISO yeah. format. Generally not um, job recruiters, but. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, having some um, visibility and introspection into these kind of odd file formats that, you know, are mostly used by threat actors can, can really help a lot as well. I mean, as you said, obviously, there's a really big social engineering campaign uh, component to this campaign. Um, multiple points of contact, you know, prior to the delivery of the, of the um, you know, ISO images and, you know, back and forth. So high, high touch social engineering campaign to get folks to download and install this stuff. So I guess one question is, is it enough for organizations to really just target that part of the attack chain or kill chain as it were, and say, just focus on, you know, educating, you know, your employees about this, um, make sure that they're aware of this particular attack vector, or should they focus energy and resources more on the, you know, after effects, the detection piece of it? Um, and, and, you know, some of these elements, you know, the ISO part of it, or, you know, what have you, where, where, where are they best, best bet to put their resources, time and money? You know, I definitely think that attacks like these with a major social engineering component, you really have to kind of have defense in depth because, you know, a lot of people, um, a lot of organizations are, you know, they understand the phishing threat. They understand that they need an email gateway. Uh, but having somebody on LinkedIn who poses as a recruiter for your company is maybe a type of threat they're not familiar with. Um, yeah. You know, so large organizations like LinkedIn, you know, may need to be may need to be a bit more aggressive with some of the impersonation. Um, you know, organizations may need to look out for it, just like they look out for typo squatting. Um, and typo squatting is, you know, when a threat actor registers a domain name similar to an organization's domain name to trick. Uh, victims into going to a, a link that is actually uh, malicious. So it's it's kind of a similar thing to where, you know, the platform LinkedIn will need to probably give this more attention. Uh, but organizations, you know, um, at all levels of, of this kind of thing, um, at the email level, but also at the impersonation level, and um, even further, of course, at the behavioral monitoring of the networks. Yeah. And I mean, for organizations too, again, these are often developers being targeted. They tend to be sophisticated users, highly privileged users, right? So it's, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of user least privilege approach is probably not going to work particularly well with them because they have 
honest need to run open source tools like this and to be mm-hmm. able to download and run it. So it's like that kind of breaks down. Um, in some ways that leaves organizations in kind of a tough spot, right? Especially if, again, these highly privileged users, developers, what have you, sysadmins are the ones being targeted in these attacks. Exactly. Um, this In this campaign, um, Zinc was specifically targeting um, software engineers, site reliability engineers. Um, so these assessments were, you know, definitely targeted at IT professionals and people proficient with these kinds of tools. So um, it can definitely, uh, it definitely kind of <laughs> reminds you to be on your toes, you know, no matter how deep you are in, into cybersecurity. Okay. And what do we know about these attacks now? Obviously, Microsoft wrote about it a couple few months ago. Um, these still going on? Is this still a risk companies need to be aware of? I mean, definitely. Um, I believe the first dream job type campaign was back in 2018. And, you know, it's been four years. They're still employing the uh, same tactics pretty much. Um, you know, sometimes it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so so uh, one of the tools that was used in this um, campaign that I didn't really dive into because, you know, people have done pretty good research on it already. Um, Zinc will also send customized PDF readers. Um, you know, as you know, PDFs, uh, you know, typically people are opening PDFs in their browser these days. So it, it's typically pretty safe because browsers are sandboxed. Um, but, you know, Zinc has a history of making their own tools, um, getting them, getting unsuspecting users to open them. And those, you know, PDFs being job descriptions, job applications. And, you know, so these are are very common techniques for them. They're going to look normal. It's going to look like a normal PDF reader that you're familiar with, but it's got some malicious functionality that's been added to it that you're not, you're not going to be privy to. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Joseph, anything I didn't ask you that I should have? I think we've covered everything pretty well, actually. Well, Joseph Edwards, malware researcher here at Reversing Labs, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us again on Conversing Labs. And uh, I'm sure we're going to have you back. 